0: As we're standing in this place, let's hear the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up. But God will not take away life. He will devise plans so as not to keep an outcast banished forever from his presence. Let's pray. Our good, our holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the images and the truths in it. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we could know you. We're grateful that the ultimate revelation of your heart, your, your character, your personality, your will, and your ways is Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, our Savior. Today, Lord, as we open Scripture together... We pray that in the pages that we would meet your spirit, that we would meet the Savior again. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us and guide us and direct us, correct us and inspire us. To that end, Lord, we come to you asking that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would give us tender hearts that would receive your word like seed planted in rich soil. God, we pray that you give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will, that you would strengthen our hands for service, that our work in this world would be like your very own. And Lord, we pray that a word of testimony and life would be found on our lips. God, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus, and we pray together this morning saying, amen and amen. Please be seated. And as you're seated, find your Bibles and turn with me to that section uh, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 14. Today we're continuing our message series, What a Mess! God's Grace in the Real World. Last week Matt Homeyer talked about uh, the David story, David and Michael. Uh, Some of you are interested in in the fact that David had a wife. Uh, Someone said, I didn't know David. I didn't know what her name was. Well, in fact, David had many wives. Uh, if you look at a genealogy of David, it looks more like kudzu vines in Georgia than, than a tree. Uh, and he has a messy story. We pick up again with a, a messy story from David. Uh, in fact, the lines that we just read were lines spoken uh, during the middle of a confrontation between the wise woman of Tekoa and David. Uh, related to something involving the messy complexity uh, that it was David's family life. In order for us to understand it, uh, I want to kind of give us some context for it because I think there are some real direct applications for our crazy, messed-up lives as well. You really have to go back to the 11th chapter uh, in this book where the problems start. In the time of year where kings go off to war, David stayed home. You need to keep your eye on the ball, fellas, ladies. I mean, David was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. Uh, He was hanging around the palace up on the hill in Jerusalem, and he looks down, and there is a beautiful woman, and she was bathing a ritual bath, uh, and she was bathing, as all people do, naked. Let's go ahead and say that together. She was naked. There you go. Thank you. Thank you so much. You got to get the picture. Because David got the picture. And his, and his mind and his heart started to wander. And David uh, used this opportunity and he abused his position. Uh, and we know the tragic story, many of us do, of David and Bathsheba, where he brings her to the palace and she is, she's impregnated. And David's in a bind. And he starts to cover his tracks. And he starts to cover his story. And he sends for Uriah the Hittite, her husband. Just just come home and and have a weekend furlough. But he's like a hard-headed redneck. it wouldn't go home. And so David, again, abuses his power. He has Joab, his most trusted person. uh, And they kill Uriah the Hittite. Horrible story. Later... Much later, Nathan, the prophet, trusted friend of David, comes to him. Now, he's no court prophet. He doesn't just scratch where it itches, tell the king what he wants to hear. Nathan's a man of God. And Nathan comes to David. And he said, David, I need to tell you a story. And he tells a story about this little ewe lamb and, and this poor man who owned this lamb and, and, and this wealthy man to serve, to serve his table goes and he kills this little lamb and feeds it to his friends. This man who had all the lambs he could possibly want. David, what do you think ought to happen to a, to a guy like that? What should, he should be, he should be, I mean, we ought to throw the book at him. We ought, to, we, ought to, we ought to put him under the jail. We ought to do, I mean, this is despicable. Nathan points his bony finger at David. I assume his finger is bony. Probably ought to be. Points his finger at David, and he says, you are the man. Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story, and and in that story, he he had a cadaver uh, done in such a way that that he would lean up and point his finger and go, you are the man. It's chilling, and this was a chilling scene. He said, you are the man. A word of grace, he says, "You'll, you'll not be executed for this, David. God will not take your life. There's the mercy. But then he says this. He said, this is is set into motion. This is set into motion something that is not going to be easily put back together. There are going to be consequences for this, temporal consequences, that we'll, we'll feel for a long time, for generations. He said, David, the sword will not depart from your house. Chapter 12, verse 10. That there'll be pain that comes generation after generation as a result of this. And true to that prophecy, the story of David unfolded and the story of his family unfolded. And it was a sad and a, and a tough story. We have in, in chapter 13 the, the horrible scene of Amnon and Tamar. Where Amnon violates his, his sister. And sends her out in tears. She rips the clothes that she wore, the the fancy clothing that she had that signified she was a a virgin daughter of the king, a a, a regal robe of of favor and, and specialness. And she's out, she's out in the streets, broken and common, her regal robe ripped, put aside. Put aside her brother Absalom. Her brother Absalom sees this. Now Absalom is is the child of a political marriage. Absalom's grandfather uh, was the king of a small little, little region. But his sister sees this. He vows in his heart. He vows in his heart that he would mete out the justice, that he would mete out the vengeance. And Absalom, he was patient. He was patient about it. He waited and waited and waited and waited. Dispassionately, he plotted through life. A couple of years go by, Amnon is at a party. Absalom sets him up, and in cold blood, he's killed. The sword continues to fall in this family. And Absalom looks around. He's just killed the son of a king, a brother of sorts. And he takes off running. He flees, verse 34 and 37 of chapter 13, but Absalom fled, but Absalom fled. He got out of Dodge. He went to the region where his grandfather was in power, and he set up shop there. He was was held in the protection uh, in that region. Absalom goes away, and he is in exile. He is an outcast from the kingdom. He's far away. Meanwhile, back at the palace, back at, back at the home base, back in Jerusalem in those lofty, beautiful hills, in that same place where David peers over and looks down and, and sees Bathsheba. In, in, that same, in that same place, David is, is growing sick and tired and old in a New York minute. You ever see somebody age rapidly? I see it every day as I pass the photograph in the hallway of me when I first came to this church. There wasn't a single gray hair on my head. I understand that Matt Homeyer calls me Matt the graying and he is Matt the balding. I prefer Matt the, the greater and Matt the lesser, but he's up to his things, whatever. <laughs> David is getting sick and he's getting tired and he's getting old and his heart is far, 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 far away. And Joab looks at this and he knows that his heart is broken For Absalom, he knows his heart is broken for these experiences. He knows that's where his mind is. That's that's where his focus is. He knows he is divided and ineffective, uh, and he's not getting anywhere in life because he's just all messed up. But Joab knows David. He he knows him well, and he knows that David, as as this passionate man, this Hemingway hero figure, this warrior poet, that a man like this, you, you can't just be direct with a guy like this. He, he saw Nathan deal, deal with, with David. He, he saw the, the, the art of the story and how it got in behind his, his, his armor, his, his calloused armored heart, uh, and how that, that story brought him out. And so Joab devised a plan. He went and found a storyteller. He went and found a, a woman known to be a wise woman, the wise woman of Tekoa. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and, and, and to dress as a mourner. I want you to go to David. And, and I want you to go as one that is, that is weak and broken. And, and I want you to go with a story. And this is your story. Can you sell it? I can sell it because I'm a storyteller. So she put the clothes on and she went. And this was the story that her sons, she was a widow, and her sons were working in the field. They got in a fight and one son killed the other. And everybody else wanted to kill the other son for the blood. She got tired of the blood. She got tired of the blood. And she didn't want to lose another son having lost the other, even if it was at the hand of the other. And she wanted, she wanted some, some help, and she, she, she appealed to him, and she, she wanted an exception to the system as someone would write a governor and plead for clemency, as someone would write a, a president and plead for clemency. I, I, wanna, I wanted some favor here. I, I know what it says, but, but this is the story, and, and this is, I don't have anything to stand on but my heart and my pleading. This is my story. I'm just tired of the blood. Uh, can you help me? Can you help me? And David, being David, well, of course, absolutely. I'll fix that. Passionate man. He sees this woman and her tears and her hurt, and he's jumping on it. And then After this story got in behind his heart, it was revealed to him what was going on. And there was a plea made that he lived like God and that he worked to bring back the banished and that he practiced the mercy he so advocated. Why the parables here? Why the stories? Well, W.H. Auden once said, you cannot tell people what to do. You can only tell them parables. What a great line. Our friend Rebecca Hayes put it like this. Parables are put flesh on abstractions. Parables are incarnational, and they point to a God who is willing to use earthly means to reveal the divine nature. Here we have it. In the face of the King. We have an earthy, gritty story that identified the character traits of God and pled for a life of mercy. David said, was Joab behind this? (laughs) And she said, I can't lie to you. I can't lie to you. We're in this one together. He said, fine. Send the word. Have Absalom come back. And so they went and they got Absalom and, and told him to come, to come back from where he was. And, and Absalom comes back. And there's all this situation where David says, okay, you can come back, but only so far. You can come back, but you got to prove some things. You can come back, but I can't allow us to get too close because everybody's watching and you know there are the rules and there's all this stuff. and uh, you, Over there, hang out. Over there, stay away. And day by day, Absalom's coming and going. And David's still seeing that. Absalom wants to get nearer, uh, and, he, and he goes to Joab. And, and Joab, would you talk to him? I mean, he, he, he said I could come back, but I, I can't come back close enough. And Would, would, you, allow, would, you, would you talk to him? And, and Joab is kind of stiffened up about that. And so Absalom, being Absalom, burns down his barley field. This dude has an edge on him. He's like, okay, I'll go. I mean mafia tactics at this point. And so he goes, This is a wild story, but it's right there in the Bible. So, come home. And there is this scene where David and Absalom embrace with tears. And there is a there is a coming home. But it's fleeting and it won't last. But there's that picture. That momentary picture of the Father and the Son together again. Now, you say, Matt, that's a wild story from the Old Testament. What on earth does it have to do with us? Well, I think it has a lot to do with us. Alexander McLaren said that the wise woman saying the one in 1414 goes very deep. And indeed, it does. All of us, Scripture says, are like sheep. We have gone astray. We've all been Absalom, and we've all been David. And this is a messy world that we live in, this real world that we call it. But in the midst of this real world, there is a God of grace who is passionately pursuing us to bring us to himself, And unlike the reunion of Absalom and David to bring us to himself in such a way that we are united, not temporally, but eternally. We serve a God that Jesus says is like the father of a prodigal son. And this story from so many years ago and this saying from verse 14 helps us get a picture of who God is and who we are, our mess and his grace. So for just a few moments, I want to point out a couple of principles that I think apply from the reading of this story. The first one is that we are all going to die. You might want to write that one down. All right. It's so common, it plum evades most of us. But the mortality rate is 100%. Filmmaker and adventurer Werner Horzog said that death is hereditary. (laughs) And indeed it is. And in verse 14 of chapter 14, she just says it straight. You're going to die. That puts some punctuation marks around our life. That gives some definition to it. That means that time is precious and it's a gift and it should not be squandered. And that as the sun is shining we should labor and we should work and we should do the business that needs to be done even if that business is reconciliation and forgiveness. And dealing with the sin that so entangles us and drags us, we are going to die. That's bad news, let's say that together. That's bad news. All right, second one. We're messed up beyond our ability to repair it. Write that one down. You're like water spilled out, she said. She looks dead the king in the eye. She says, you are like spilt water. Can you imagine how precious water is in an arid climate? (laughs) You should go and see some of these, some of this, uh, of these fortifications and, and some of this construction, some of this engineering uh, that the Jews and then the Romans did in this world. It's fascinating. It's what people travel over the ocean to see. This stuff. Water is now and forever has been precious. We moved here during a historic drought. I got depressed. I remember when when the rain fell, my children went and played in it like it was magical. Because indeed, it was magical. Because water is life. Could you imagine being in a hot Israeli environment and, and being parched and having a cup of water and you draw it all the way to your lips only to drop it? And have that, have that clay cup break on the ground and all that water run into the dust just making mud. You didn't want to play in that mud. You wanted to add to it with your tears. Because you knew there wasn't a thing you could do to put that water back in that cup again. You could work the rest of the day, the rest of the week, the rest of the month, the rest of your life. And you are not going to restore that simple cup of water. I think it's a liberating moment in life when we recognize that the problems that we have born of our sin are problems so large we can't fix them on our own. Certainly we have responsibilities and certainly there are things we can do and there are responses to be made, but at the end of it, they're bigger than us. They're bigger than us. That's number two. Alright, here we go. This is bad news stuff, but we keep going. There is a, a quantitative effect to this. The, the next one is that we're in this together, if you will. If death is hereditary, then, then we share by virtue of our humanity the sin that entangles the world. And there is a sword that has not departed any of our houses, for the wages of sin is death. And in this messiness, we pass on stuff and we receive stuff, and we've got to understand that. Probably the, the quintessential southern novel is Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Some of you have read it. Some of you read it and threw it in the river. Some of you read it and lost all your eyebrows as you were pulling it out. It's, it's, it's not as difficult as some of Faulkner's writings, but it's, it's a toughie. But in that novel, it contains the longest sentence in literature. If you're playing trivia, write it down. It's the longest sentence in literature is in Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. It contains 1,288 words. How about that first sentence? It begins with the words just exactly like father. And here's the clincher. The sentence is incomplete. After 1,288 words, Faulkner gave us an incomplete sentence. Now there are a couple of things that could be An explanation for this. One, he was just hammered drunk. (laughs) Faulkner drank so much that Hemingway judged him. (laughs) Hemingway said, "I I knew in the paragraph when he started. I could hear the ice clinking in the glass. I knew in the paragraph. Number two, he was a genius. Number three, he was hammered drunk and a genius. You make your decision. But I think the second one has something to do with the human condition that he speaks of, and that's this, that yes, we could all write down in one way or another, just exactly like mother, just exactly like father, and then ramble and ramble and ramble and ramble, and, ramble, and then when we got to the end of our sentence, it'd still be incomplete. Because friends, we don't have enough ink to finish that sentence on our own. We can't do it. We can't do it. You won't do it. But. But. You see, in the middle of this scene, there is a diagnosis of our condition as humans in this world, of the wages of our rebellion. There's a scene. And because of this, we, we've banished, just like Absalom. We we have been banished. This past week, many of you know I was at Kids Camp. Let me tell you how Kids Camp work Your first year at the Riverbend Camp. When your church group goes, you get the best accommodations at the camp. Last year we got the rooms right next to the worship center and the rec field and the where they serve food, the cafeteria. At night they would come down and turn down your sleeping bags and put a mint on there. <laughs> they'd bring orange juice by, they'd ice down your Dr. Pepper, they ask you how you were doing. That's year number one. Well, at Riverbend this year, this was our year number two. So I'm driving the bus in, and there's another bus behind me. Robin goes and checks in, and she comes back, and she says, Matt, we're going to be staying in the wagons in the outpost. I said, that sounds fun. Where's that? And she told me. And so we got in the bus, and we drove. We drove to the far, far back side of the camp. We, we passed one border patrol agent. Uh, <laughs> We got to the back side of camp, and it, and it, was, it was conveniently located next to the, to the uh, septic tanks. <laughs> so there were always vultures circling overhead, which gave it just sort of an increasing sort of atmosphere of doom. And we were back there, and so we went to the outpost, which is, is, is Outback. Uh, we were in the outpost, uh, and we were in what they called the wagons. Now, now, what the wagons are are these sort of uh, lean-to shacks built sort of like Conestoga wagons. Uh, we, we did some research, and we found out that a retired podiatrist and 12 RAs built them. They looked about like that. They did provide for us a window unit air conditioner, uh, which it seemed the only purpose for that was to keep the indoor-outdoor strip of carpet constantly wet. <laughs> so we were in the outpost, and that was no good. But what we discovered at camp was that you can get beyond the outpost, and you can become an outcast. Because all week long, there were rumors. There were rumors of boys or girls that had taken the the group of very reasonable rules and guidelines given to make camp safe and fun and blew them to shreds. And one or two of these kitties, created in the image of God, precious in his sight, pushed it so hard that they got kicked out of camp. Happens every year. Just glad it wasn't one of ours. We came close. But you, you can go from the out, you can go from the outpost to being the outcast. And you say, if a kid gets kicked out of camp, what's happened? Have they kicked him out or has he has he kicked himself out? What's the answer to that? Yes. When it came to Absalom, was he kicked out or did he kick himself out? Yes. I love I love this line from Alexander McLaren. He says, on the one hand it was banishment, on the other hand it was flight. So it was with Absalom, and so it is with us. You see, when we look at our benevolent God, and we say, we'll do it our own way, and we grasp and we claw, then there is a self-banishment that comes. And we become far, far from God. By virtue of the fact that He is holy and He is just, and that, and that His character means that this sin has pushed us far, and because we're running like scalded dogs away from Him to do things our own way, running like Jonah ran from the presence of God. And the nature and the, the condition. Is exile, it's exile, it's banishment. There's a line in a Lou Reed, uh, Leonard Cohen song, I almost called him Lou Reed, it said, when you're not feeling holy, your loneliness tells you you're sinned. You see, sin is a very lonely thing. Do you remember the early stories in Scripture? After, after the rebellion in the garden, oh no, it's your fault, it's her fault, it's their fault, it's, it's my fault. And, and they hid from God But God, but God wouldn't stand for this. And that's what this woman said to David. God wouldn't stand for this. But God, but God, looking at this spilt life and this mess, said this cannot be the end of this story. And she looked at him and she said, God plans, plans. He schemes, schemes. He devises strategies so that the banished one will not stay banished. And as we go through the rest of Israel's story, we meet meet an itinerant rabbi from Nazareth who lives a perfect life, a faithful life one that had the audacity to claim that he was the Son of God and that he came to seek, to seek, to save the lost and to bring them to God. And one of these lost boys, a rule-following lost boy named Saul of Tarsus met that Savior and he later would take a pen in hand and he said, It is the blood of Jesus that draws us near. James Davison Hunter, Bright Mind, he says, God's faithful presence implies that he pursues us. Though estranged through indifference or rebellion, God seeks us out. Pursuit, identification, the offer of life through sacrificial love, that is what God's faithful presence means. It is a quality of commitment that is active, not passive, intentional, not accidental, covenantal, not contractual. In the life of Christ, we see how it entailed His complete attention. It was wholehearted, not half-hearted, focused and purposeful, Nothing desultory about it. His very name, Emmanuel, signifies all of this. God with us in our presence. Did you catch that? Guys, we're a spilt mess. The Bible word for that is sin and rebellion. God is a pursuing God. And he came for us. That's called grace. And all that respond in trust and in faith, they are reconciled and made whole. And from that point onward, they get to live that out again and again and again and again. Oh, we're prone to wander. We can feel it just like the song says. But he comes for us. In the world that is, God is present. And he's present to love us back to himself. Would you quit fighting that and come on home? Let's pray. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for a chance to sing and to pray in this room. We're grateful, Lord, that you met us and that you love us and that into this world that has gone awry because of our rebellion, you have come as the Savior to reconcile all things to yourself. We are grateful that you can't stand the alienation that we experience from you. Lord, I pray that there are men and women that hear this that will begin a journey home toward you. Lord, you have pursued them, and you are pursuing them even now. Lord, as we stand and sing... I pray that someone would seal that in their heart this very day. Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation. David, please lead us.